Mr. Jan did it. Hello, can you hear me now? Okay, cool. All right, you haven't found that switch yet? <laughs> so, um, uh, so, completely lost my train of thought. Thank you, Dan. So, um, yeah, yeah, so, you know, so Patrick was explaining it too fast, um, but it is a really a great explanation. It really is. It's worth, I think, probably going back and, and watching again. Then the other um, part I didn't like is the very last um, phrase spoken by the, um, I think it's Connell, the guy on the right. And, um, and, and so it was cool that actually that the, the volume was too low for you guys to hear it. So, um, but anyway, Lutheran satire, if you've never seen that um, YouTube channel before, it's actually, they got some pretty good theology. And it's sort of a fun way to learn some, like I said, real, really good theology. We're not going to line up 100% on everything, but again, it's uh, it, they do some good stuff. And this is probably their most uh, famous, most popular video. And so you hear people all the time going, that's modalism, Patrick. So, um, so anyway, moving on. Let's get, to the, let's get to the good stuff. Let's pray, and then we'll actually get started with our class. Father, uh, thank you for this morning, um, just this ability to come together and um, to study who you are. Um, and then study, study your son and get to know uh, you, get to know him, get to know one another just a little bit better. Father, we ask that um, uh, you be with us in this time, uh, send the spirit of truth, and that only truth be uh, spoken, understood, and, and remembered. We love you, we trust you, help us to glorify you in everything that we do. We pray all these things um, in the wonderful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so... Things to keep in mind from last week. In studying the Trinity, we must strike a balance between his knowability and his incomprehensibility. So you'll remember one of the very first things that we talked about is that we may know God truly, but we cannot know him exhaustively. And so, so you know, sometimes we just have to know when to let go. Sometimes, um, you know, we'll hear something that we don't understand. Um, and that's his incomprehensibility. Uh, it, it, just because we don't understand it doesn't, you know, doesn't mean it's not true. And then who would want to worship a God that you can fully understand? The Trinity has no analogy. And so with the, the, the video, you could see that was the struggle that, that we have um, uh, in understanding the Trinity. If you go back... Um, Typically what happens is you learn something unfamiliar by relating it to the familiar. And so, for example, in, like, say, the early 20th century, when people were learning about automobiles, you know, and so, you know, Brian had never heard of an automobile, and I was trying to explain to him what it, you know, what it was in the early 20th century, what would I call it? Would I call it a car or a Ferrari or something like that? No, he wouldn't know what it was. What would I call it? A what? A horseless carriage, right? Because it's, it's like a carriage, but it doesn't have a horse, so it's a horseless carriage. And so in that way, they could begin to kind of uh, understand what, what a car was by taking the familiar and then putting it into the unfamiliar. The problem with the Trinity is there's nothing in the world that is like him. And so there's no analogy that fits. And any time we try to use an analogy... Uh, we end up with, um, you know, kind of a classical heresy. 
And the Godhead, a being and a person, um, are not the same thing. We talked about this last week and how, um, you know, in, the, in our world, a being and a person, there's a one-to-one relationship. But when you come to, um, come to the Godhead, then that there's a, a three-to-one relationship, or I guess a one-to-three relationship. And so, um, and so it, again, it's something that uh, his, his nature is something that we can't get our, our minds around in large part, one, because it's infinite, but also because there's nothing like him in the natural world. Strange does not mean untrue. Unfamiliar does not mean untrue. Okay? So something that's radically different than everything in the world doesn't mean that it's not true. So the doctrine of the Trinity is, we can call strange, or we, you know, I don't mean that in a negative way by any, any stretch of the imagination. Um, but... The, the, the Trinity is just completely different, but that does not mean that it, it's not true. It, it absolutely is true. And also, like I said a little while ago, incomprehensible doesn't mean untrue. Just because we can't understand something, how something works, doesn't mean that it, it's not um, legitimate. So our three biblical principles of the Trinity, you guys remember what they were? The first one's easy, right? What's the first one? There is one God. Yeah, you guys cheated. All right. What's the second one? You get, well, you got it. Yeah, it eternally exists as three persons, right? So three persons. So God exists eternally as three persons, three distinct persons. Okay. Um, in this class, when we get to Christology as well, you're going to hear me, pardon the expression here, but you're going to hear me make a distinction between distinction and separation. What is, it, what is the difference between distinguishing something and separating something? If I... It, you know, it, 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 it's not bad, but... Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to describe. Uh, what R.C. Sproul would say um, is if we have Caleb here, um, if I distinguish between his head and his body, that's okay. We can say, okay, his head has ears and um, a smooth top, and then, and then, and then his body um, has a shirt on it, you know. Um, but if I separate his head from his body, um, I'm going to go to jail, Okay. <laughs> Okay, so uh, separating, you can think of as almost like doing violence. It's separating, but distinguishing, they can still be together, but you're just kind of telling the difference between the two, okay? And so when we think about the eternal persons, uh, the three persons of the Godhead, we want to distinguish them. We don't want to separate them because when we separate them, we get into three gods tri- um, or tritheism. Sound good? Make sense? Yeah, okay. Um, and then <laughs> I threw it up there too fast, didn't I? What's the third one? What's that? Absolutely. Beautiful. Uh, each person is fully, completely, and eternally God. Okay? So, again, if you can remember these three things in terms of the Trinity, you don't have to think about essences or homoousios or hypostases or, you know, none of these Greek words. If you can have. Uh, these three things in mind, these three principles in mind, you, you won't go wrong in thinking about the Trinity.
All right. So let's take each of those three, and we're just going to put them on the point of a triangle. Okay? Um, you'll see why we're going to do this in just a second. Now, there's another diagram that has, like, Father, Son, Holy Spirit um, in the three points, and then it's got, um, you know, God in, in, in the middle, and it, it's got, like, relationships between them. This is not that diagram. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that diagram. This is just a different diagram, because I've been asked about that um, every time I've, I've shown this. This has nothing to do with that diagram. This is the, the three print biblical principles in each of the three triangles, right? Now, what happens is if we deny one of these three principles, then we end up with a heresy that can ex- be expressed across over on the other side. So in this case, if somebody denies that there's one and only one true God, they embrace the other two things. Three, uh, the, um, there's three eternally distinct persons, and then the, each person is fully God. You end up with something called tritheism, okay? that there's three gods. Okay? And of course, that, is, that would be a heretical, um, a heretical belief. Um, so you can see how it, how it goes across, where if you deny one, you end up with the kind of uh, an offsetting um, heresy, if you will. Now, what happens if you dis- deny that God is three eternally distinct persons, but you believe or accept or affirm that he's one God and each person is fully God? You end up with what? Modalism, Patrick. Okay. And so what modalism is, to explain it just a little bit, um, a little bit further, because you probably didn't catch everything in the, in the video, um, modalism is where you have a person um, who, uh, where God is one person who fills different roles at different times, okay? So, for example, um, there, there's a, a group, one is Pentecostals, uh, led by folks like T.D. Jakes. You've heard of T.D. Jakes, one of the most popular, quote-unquote, pastors in America or preachers in America, or actually, I guess, in the world. And what he would say is that um, God was uh, manifested as the Father. That's the big word, is manifest. God was manifested as the Father from, from creation up to the incarnation, and then he was no longer manifested as the Father. and He became manifested as the Son. And so he was manifested on, as the Son between um, uh, the, the birth of Christ and Pentecost. And then at Pentecost, he became manifested as the Holy Spirit. And then even today, he's manifested as the Holy Spirit. Okay? Tons of problems with that. And we talked about some of them you know, last week. Um, you know, for example, you know, in, in, in John 17, when Jesus is praying to God, is he praying to himself? And if so, then why is he talking to him? You know, why is he doing that? Is it just to, I don't know, for some kind of weird instruction? Is he playing out a drama for some instruction um, to his disciples? It doesn't make any sense, okay? So modalism, just think, you got one person. Um, another way to think about it is, uh, you know, one person can be an uncle sometimes, can be a father sometimes, and can be a son sometimes. And so they play, you know, different roles at different times, okay? So that's the whole idea about modalism, is um, uh, different, uh, playing different roles, God playing different roles at different times. 
Make sense? Any other questions? No? Yes, sir. Um, I, so if you didn't hear the question, um, Steve asked, is the idea that he cannot do more than one role at a time? Um, I don't really know how they would explain that. Um, I think the key is they just think of him as one person and so, and they deny the Trinity. Um, and so what they do is they say, you know, he just did these different things at different times. I'm not sure how they, exactly how they would ask that question or answer that question. Sorry. Sorry, I, it's a good question. Um, I don't, just don't have a good answer for you. Anybody else? No? Okay. Uh, each person, okay, so if you deny that each, each uh, person is fully God, specifically, what typically happens is they deny that the Son is fully God, um, then you end up with, uh, you know, affirming that, okay, there's one God, um, and there are three Eternally, there are three distinct persons, um, but you end up with something called Arianism. Okay? Now, Arius, um, and then I, I think uh, it, you can also refer to it as adoptionism, because um, Arius wasn't the only heretic. Okay? Uh, but Arius was a uh, um, uh, theologian um, around uh, early 4th century, so think early 300s. And um, what he taught was that Jesus was a uh, created being. And what he would do is he would look at, like, say, John 3.16, where it says that uh, Jesus is God's only begotten son. Well, if he's begotten, then he's what? He's born, meaning he comes into being. Um, and so that's not what that verse means, but that's the way Arius would uh, um, interpret that word begotten. And so he would say, okay, Jesus came into being. If you turn to uh, Colossians 2, and it says that Jesus is uh, the firstborn of all creation. Then he would say, see, he was the firstborn of, of all creation. He came into, into being. Again, that's not what that verse means. Um, we can break both of those down. As a matter of fact, I'd like to either um, at the end of the class or, or, or next week. Um, so remind me if, you're, if, you're, if you want us to do that. Okay, cool. Any other questions on that? Now, Arianism has been a thorn in the church's side for a really long time. Who, who are probably the most prominent um, uh, Arianists? Yeah, Arianists, I guess. For some reason, I'm not, not thinking of the words. Uh, people that would buy into Arianism. Who would be the most popular folks out there today? Sorry? Jehovah. Jehovah's Witnesses, exactly. Yeah. They believe uh, Jesus was a created being. They also teach that uh, the Holy Spirit is not a person, but a power like a, uh, you know, electricity or something like that. All right. So those are the three principles. And then I think it's also helpful to look at kind of the three um, heresies that, that, um, that are kind of fallen between. Okay. Now we're going to flip the script a little bit, so to speak, and we're going to begin to talk about Christology. Now, the interesting thing about, the hard thing to understand, get our minds around with the Trinity is that there's uh, one being, we can also say essence, one essence, okay, and three persons, okay, one, one essence or being, but one essence, three persons. Uh, 
The problem with Christology, the person of Christ, is that you have one person, two essences. How does that work? Okay. Um, because it's almost like the opposite problem. But it's, it's very tightly bound with the Trinity because, um, and, and it's, uh, it's actually a beautiful doctrine because it enables uh, believers to approach a holy God or the holy God. Okay. So we had three principles of the Trinity. We're going to talk about three, um, I'm sorry, four principles of Christology. Now, to go along with um, these principles, you'll, I'm going to be in the upper right-hand corner uh, constructing a little diagram. And this diagram, I think, helps us to, un- to remember what those four principles are. Um, I got this from um, a professor at Biola University named Eric Thoenes, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, T-H-O-E-N-N-E-S. Um, he's actually one of my favorite lecturers um, out there. Uh, he, um, in these lectures, he's um, teaching, uh, you know, undergraduate level, you know, students at Biola University. And he's, he's so relatable, he's so passionate, but really tight theology. And again, I, I love the way he teaches, but he uses this diagram. I don't know if he came up with it or somebody else did. Um, but anyway, he's on YouTube as well, so I'd recommend, um, uh, almost said Googling him, but YouTubing him um, because you, you can learn a lot from him. But anyway, um, so the first principle of uh, Christ- biblical Christology is that Jesus is fully and completely divine, Okay. So he's fully and completely God. Um, you can't put a number on it. You can't say 100%, right? Because it's not a, a scale. He's fully and completely, um, completely God. And so we represent that by the D on the upper right-hand corner, and it's for D for deity, right? Makes sense. Uh, what do you think the next one would be? Right. Jesus is fully and completely human. Okay, so he has to be a human being because he's our representative. Uh, he died on our behalf. Okay, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But so you have an H for uh, humanity, uh, D for deity. Okay, so far so good. Um, now, the human and divine natures are distinct and without confusion. Okay, so remember a little while ago we talked about what this distinct means? This is where it becomes really, really important because we're distinguishing between the humanity and the deity, but we're, we're not separating the humanity and the deity. Okay, because if we separate him, we run into heresy. Okay, um, so the human and divine natures are distinct and without confusion, and so you kind of have a dividing line there. Um, between the H and the D, showing that there's a, a distinction there. And then finally, the human and divine natures are completely united in one person. Okay, And that's the circle going around it. And so we have the mystery, the ultimate mystery is how you can have two divine natures, essences, whatever you want to call them, in one person. Now, if you think the Trinity is mind-blowing... This is just as mind-blowing, okay? 
Um, and so the circle around the whole thing represents that. And so if you remember the HD with the line, in it, then you can have a, a pretty good start on remembering the four principles of Christology. And again, you can get into a lot of trouble from a heretical perspective if you, um, uh, from a theology perspective, if you, uh, if you kind of go outside of these four, uh, these four principles. Cool. Any questions so far? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. If we were in a court of law, we would have a, a, a human attorney who is familiar with the judge to understand the court and the right. proceedings. So having Christ as our mediator, he was human to understand us, to be compliant, to understand right. the judge. So he is, he is the perfect mediator in that sense. A- absolutely. Did everybody hear that? If I did, I'm sure you, you guys did. All right. Um, yeah, and that, that's, that, that's, that's excellent. Um, I actually, I forget how many, probably 10 years ago or so or, or more, um, I was struggling with the question. We've all talked about how God is holy and you cannot, a sinful being cannot approach God, right? Um, it just, you know, he doesn't allow that. But the problem I had was the Son is just as holy as the Father. Then how is it that we can have contact, so to speak, with, with the Son, you know, where he's just as holy as the Father? And so if, if we're unable, if holy and unholy are unable to come together, you know, with the Father, then wouldn't that be with the Son? I could not figure that out. And so uh, D.A. Carson, who's my favorite theologian, um, I sent it, I actually sent an email to probably about five, five different theologians asking this question because I couldn't find the answer anywhere. And D.A. Carson was the only one that personally responded. So, um, even, so I like him even better now. Um, and so uh, I've never deleted the email, by the way. Um, but uh, he said, you know, he didn't t- say a whole lot, but he said, you need to look into the mystery of, of Christ, of the dual natures of Christ. And the technical term is hypostatic union, and it's uh, personal union coming together, right? And so, um, but it goes to exactly what Dan was saying in that, that only in this arrangement, what we have here, is it possible for uh, an unholy um, sinner to have... To have uh, a relationship with God, and that's through that mediator that is both human and divine. And is not 50-50 or anything like that, which we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But, um, but no, it's a great, great point. All right, any other questions? Yes, sir. Are you really going to ask this? Yes. Go ahead. But did he get rid of his omniscience and omnipresence right. being on the earth? Okay, that, that's, a, uh, that's the $64 bazillion question, isn't it? Did you all hear that? Um, 
so uh, he's at uh, what Randy's asking. Thank you very much. Is when Jesus is on Earth, he's he's still God, okay? Um, and he said he recognized that uh, he emptied himself as a, of his omnipotence, but how about uh, his omniscience? He still had his omnipotence. He still had his omnipotence. Right, right, right. But kind of, kind of how does all this emptying and stuff work? Um, if you turn to Philippians 2, um, it talks about um, Jesus emptying himself. What, what he did was he... Uh, what that passage is saying is he humbled himself. He was still fully God. He didn't get rid of, 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 of anything. Um, but he was still fully God, but he just did not take those um, rights and prerogatives uh, when, when he was on earth. And so he went to, uh, went to the cross and died a violent death that he absolutely did not deserve. Now, what did Jesus know? How did he know it? What was he able to do? Kind of all of these divine attributes that Mike is going to start talking about in two weeks. Um, how does that work when you have a human being on earth? Um, can he have, contain all of these attributes? I don't know how that works. And honestly, if, if anybody gives you a definitive answer on that question, um, they probably don't know all the questions to ask. They don't know all the ramifications. Because that, that's one of those, uh, you know, we talk about mysteries in the, um, uh, in the Bible. A mystery is not like a puzzle to be figured out. A mystery is, is an unknown. And it's something that God will reveal. Um, but that's the sort of thing where, hey, you know, your guess is as good as, well, I would say your guess is as good as mine, but in reality, your guess is probably as bad as mine. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's a good answer to that. Other than going back to the very first slide where it talks about the incomprehensibility of God. So, all right. I would ask if there's any other questions, but I really don't want any, any more after that one. All right. Can you, can you read that okay in the upper left-hand corner? Okay, that's, those are the four principles, um, just kind of as a reminder up there. And what we're going to do is we're going to step through um, four different heresies throughout um, church history. Um, over on the right, what we've got is the, that symbol that, that I showed you guys, a little diagram. And then what we do is um, the heresy that, um, uh, the, the principle that the heresy impacts is changed or highlighted or, or whatever, right? So in this case, you can still kind of see the H a little bit, the humanity, um, but it's just greatly diminished, okay? So what we have is uh, Apollinarianism. Now, that's a great word. I challenge you to work that into your lunchtime um, conversation today, Apollinarianism. And so Apollinarianism comes from Apollinaris, big surprise, uh, in the fourth century. He said that Jesus had a normal human body but a strictly divine spirit. Okay, so think about that for a minute. Um, you know, humans, of course, are, have a body, so we're material, and then we also have a spirit, so we're immaterial. And what, um, so we have to have both. If you don't have both, then you're not, not a human. Now, I get it, we're gonna be separated for, from our bodies for a period of time, 
Um, but we still have a body. We still have a, still have a spirit. So what Apollinaris said was that Jesus had a normal human body, but his, his spirit was divine. Okay? His rational mind was, was divine. Um, an analogy, big surprise, would be like Mickey Mouse at Disney World. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? I'm not talking about the cartoon. I'm talking about the character. Um, Caleb, close your ears. I don't want to, like, I don't, don't want to disappoint you or anything. Um, but Mickey Mouse running around Disney World is not really a mouse. I bet you didn't know that. Yeah. No, it's a person inside, in, inside of, of, of that costume. And I actually saw a picture one time with, with Mickey with his head, head taken off. Um, but that's kind of an analogy of Apollinarianism, where you have this, um, you have this, this, this body, but you have like an alien, um, something different in, inside of the, the body that's not really a depiction of the body. I know it's a stretch of an analogy, but I tried. Um, so what's the problem with this view? What's that? Takes away the fully human part, doesn't it? How can Jesus be tempted in that mm-hmm. sense without that? Great. How could how could Jesus be tempted? Exactly. Anybody else? No, those are fantastic. That that's exactly it. How can um, if Jesus is not fully human, then he's not our representative? Um, you can look at Romans five. Uh, verses 5 through 19, where it talks about, um, you know, the first Adam and how the first Adam brought us in, brought death into the world. And everybody is born into identifying with that Adam. And then, um, and then Jesus is depicted as the second Adam. And he's the one that brings life into the world. And so through him, through, um, by grace, through faith, Believing in Jesus, we, we, the death is removed and we become alive. We inherit eternal life through, through Christ. Okay? But in order for that to happen, Jesus has to be fully human. If he's not, then he's not the second Adam. Okay? The other one is Hebrews chapter 2, particularly verses 14 through 18. And what this talks about is him being um, our high priest and being able to identify, uh, he's able to identify with our calamities and um, our, you know, sicknesses, you know, and things of that nature. Because he was, he was made like us. Not sinful, but he was made like us. He can identify with us. So why is it tempting to diminish the full humanity of Christ. Why is that? Because I would be willing to bet that you and I probably struggle with that a little bit too. Maybe not to the heretical side, but why is it so easy uh, to be tempted to diminish the full humanity of Christ? Anybody? Okay. It. You're saying diminishing his humanity diminishes his deity at the same time because it blends? Yeah. Because, okay. You know, if you're less than one, you're basically less than the whole. Okay. Yeah, okay, less than the whole. <clears throat> kind of what I was thinking is that um, nobody in the 21st century attacks the humanity of Christ. Everybody attacks the deity of Christ. And what happens is when people... Uh, you know, if they attack from the right, 
you tend to move away to the left and vice versa. Um, and so, you know, we, we tend to overreact um, a lot of times. And so when you have these attacks on the deity of Christ, a lot of times, I'm sorry, yeah, deity of Christ, a lot of times it's, uh, we have a tendency to overemphasize the deity of Christ at the expense of his humanity, you know? Now, the interesting thing was, if you go back to the first couple of centuries, they didn't so much struggle with his deity as they did his humanity. They couldn't understand how God or why God would become a human being, you know? And, and so they had all kinds of um, heresies running around that really kind of denied his, not his, his deity, but his, his humanity. Okay, so that's one. The second is um, adoptionism. Another uh, word for it um, that we used a little while ago would be Arianism. Okay? So adoptionists, like Arius and another guy named Paul of Samosata, said that the son was originally not God. He was somehow adopted by the father, and then he became God. Okay? Um, so an analogy would be a person receiving a promotion. Maybe that one's a little more straightforward than the Disney World one. So, um, so what's the problem with this one? Well, hey, you know what? That's good enough, isn't it? It's a direct conflict with what the Bible teaches, exactly. You know, people hold... Folks like uh, Gandhi think in their minds that they're holding Jesus in high regard because they look at him as a great ethical teacher whose life is to be emulated, you know? Um, the Muslims who we were talking about last week, they said that, you know, he is, you know, one of the greatest men to ever walk, you know, the face of the earth. Now, if, if Gandhi and some Muslim are describing or they're talking about a human being, strictly a human being, a man or a woman, then absolutely um, they would be holding that person in high regard. But if they're talking about the creator of the universe, if they're talking about God himself, which Jesus is, then they, by calling him a creation or not acknowledging him for who he is, is the greatest insult that is, possi- that is possible. It's the greatest blasphemy in, to challenge who God is. And moreover, to make yourself God, because ultimately that's what we're doing when that happens. And so adoptionism cuts right to the heart of, um, you know, probably the, the worst blasphemy. It's, the, it's probably the most offensive, because it's saying that Jesus is not the God of the universe. Eutychianism, is that the great... Now, you get extra points if you work that one into your, um, into your conversation at lunch today. So Eutychianism, before we even get to it, you can tell that somehow it blends humanity and deity, right? Because we got rid of the line in between. So this is a form of monophysitism. Um, that is one nature, monophysitism. Well, I said it once without stuttering, but I can't pull it off a second time. Uh, Eutychus... Uh, early 5th century, said that Jesus' divine nature was absorbed into his human, or I'm sorry, his divine nature absorbed his human nature. 
So his divine nature is so big and overwhelming that it absorbed his, his human nature. Okay? So an analogy would be like a drop of ink dissolving in the ocean. Okay? Um, so what's the problem with this one? It, it dilutes his humanity. It also dilutes his deity. Yeah. So, uh, you know, God is not, I'm going to put numbers here. Like I said a little while ago, he's not like 100%, you know, 100% God. He's fully God. It's not like he's 99.9999999999, you know, off into infinity percent God. He is fully God. Okay. Um, so dissolving or diluting that by the smallest bit is, again, it's heretical and it's, it's blasphemous as well. And so what Eutychianism does is it, it blends the hu- humanity and the, and the deity together and does no honor, destroys both of them, to be honest. Okay? And then finally, Nestorianism. Um, Nestorius opposed the use of the term theotakos, uh, the bearer of God in reference to Mary. He said that she gave birth to a man, not God, and so the two natures are not truly unified. Now, this guy, I, I really, if, if it's possible to have your favorite heretic, he's my favorite heretic, because I really, I think I, I really understand where this guy's coming from. What was happening at that time was they were beginning to use a term, like it says up there, called theotakos. That means God-bearer. And Nestorius is going, man, I'm having a hard time with that. I I don't want to call Mary a God-bearer. She didn't carry God. She carried, you know, the Messiah. So what he proposed was another term called Christotakos. So the Messiah-bearer, rather. So he's trying to, okay, fine, do her honor that, you know, um, she was given grace. She was given the privilege of the amazing privilege of carrying the, the Messiah, but he just cut, could not call her, in essence, the mother of God. He couldn't go there. I can't go there, you know, so I understand that. But the problem is he went, he was seen as going maybe a little bit too far. Too far. And so what he did um, was he... Um, he honored the distinction between the humanity and the deity, kind of at the expense of the unity. Okay, because if she did not carry God, you know, that being in there that's, that's fully God, then now you've got Jesus being um, separated, not unified, you know, between this humanity and his deity. Does it make sense? Yeah? Okay, I hope so. Um, and so he was actually um, uh, put in exile. Fortunately, he wasn't killed. He was put in exile, and he went off to uh, Saudi Arabia, or what is now Saudi Arabia, uh, the uh, Arabian Peninsula. Now, what's funny, and this is a, a side note, what's funny is that's where a lot of heretics ended up going, is the Arabic Peninsula. And then you end up, you know, few hundred years later, there's a man named Muhammad who is in the uh, um, kind of has a caravans. He, he married a, a, 
a rich widow and inherited, or I guess uh, came, came into where he was running these caravans, these, these trade routes. So he was uh, uh, traveling kind of throughout that, that region. A lot of the things that he says in the Quran or that he even says in the Hadith um, are Christian uh, heresies. They're not Orthodox Christianity. He doesn't know what Orthodox, he didn't know what Orthodox Christianity was. He only had the, the heresies to go by. And the story, and the story is, was one of them that seems to have impacted um, what Muhammad thought about Jesus. So anyway, I find that, that fascinating, but how history kind of intertwines, right? So an analogy would be like two people inside a, a horse costume. They're two distinct people. Well, they're two separate people, but they're kind of, they got this cheap wrapper around, right? So what's the problem here? Kind of already talked about it, didn't I? Everything that, that Dan has talked about, everything that Steve has talked about, um, in terms of God being our, me- or I'm sorry, Jesus being our mediator, because he is both human and divine, it, it kind of, it, it interferes with that, okay? Um, kind of destroys that. So Nestorianism is one of those things we have to guard against as well. All right. Now we come to the infamous graph. You guys know what's coming, right? So when we try to figure out the dual, what we call the dual natures of Christ, uh, it goes by dual natures of Christ, hypostatic union, Christology, person of Christ. There's, there's a, a lot of different ways that you can name it. But when it comes to this, um, we, th- we tend to think of things on a line like this, right? It's almost like a number line, except notice I don't have arrows. <laughs> um, but on one end of the line segment, we have uh, all human, no divine, so fully human. On the other end, we have uh, fully divine, not human at all, okay? So where would Caleb be in this, okay? Far left, right? You and I. Uh, where would God the Father be? Far right. Okay. Now, where would Jesus be? Is there anybody that hasn't seen this before? Okay, good. Um, so where would Jesus be? Would he be in the middle? No. No. Why not? That make him 50-50. Great. Okay, cool. So what, what would be in the middle, theoretically? Percy Jackson or uh, Hercules, right? So you have these demigods where they're part human, part, part God. And, of course, that's not reality. So then you go back to where would Christ be? And it's like we can't put Christ on this line, on this line segment, okay? So we have to think about it in a different way. We have to think about him in a different way. And so what you do is you end up with something like this. You start in the lower left-hand corner. It's like not, not divine at all, not human at all. Now, that might be what? I don't know, a cat? Well, they're satanic, so. A dog? Okay, it'd be a dog. Now, if you go up the left-hand side, um, it's all divine, no, no human. So um, fully divine, not human at all. And then the lower right would be uh, not divine at all, but fully human. And then the upper right-hand corner would be fully divine, fully human, okay? So it's just, it's a, like a, a graph that you had in, in school. So, again, where would Caleb be? 
He'd be lower right, right? Now, where would God the Father be? He'd be, no, I'm sorry, yeah, or lower right, upper left. What's funny is I'm looking up there, and of course it's completely different. Well, it's the opposite of what you're seeing over here, so I'm trying to transpose left, never mind. Um, so where would Percy Jackson be? Yeah, so he'd be there in the middle. And then, of course, Christ is upper right-hand corner, right? Fully divine, uh, fully human. Now, is this flawless? No, it's not flawless. But what it does is it teaches us that we have to think in different ways, okay? Part of it is if you go back to this, one of the things that you run into is you say, okay, to be fully human um, and to be fully God is, uh, is a contradiction. Now, in our everyday world, it is a contradiction. But in, in God's economy, so to speak, um, in, I don't want to say his world, but in God, mind, uh, nature, those things are not a contradiction. And so that's why you end up with um, something like this. Okay. And so... Um, Anyway, we got a few more minutes, so we're good for questions. Any questions or thoughts or problems? No? Okay, what you got? Why did all the heretics go to the That's a good question. I don't have a really good answer, but what I think is the... Um, if you look at kind of where they came from, which would be the middle, well, it would be like right around the Mediterranean. If they went north or uh, west, then they would be still running into like Christian territory, um, Roman Empire, that sort of thing. Um, but if they go east, now they're kind of, they're leaving the Roman Empire and they're going to a place where Christianity is not really present, it's not really a thing. And so they can live and teach and kind of do whatever it is that they're, they're, they're wanted to do. Yeah. And even if they went um, kind of northeast, they would get into, um, you know, Constantinople, kind of that area, kind of the eastern empire. So if they went east and then south down into the Arabic Peninsula, um, then they would, they could do their thing. So does that make sense? I'm pretty sure of that, but I, I, it's on the fly. So cool. But good question. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh-huh. And the, uh huh. The argument that you were discussing earlier, going back to Philippians, when uh, when it says, uh, you know, have the attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then further down, um, that uh, let's see, uh, he found an appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Right. It makes an argument for Arianism in that. Passage. I'd like to know your thoughts on, on that, that he didn't find you know, equality with God something to be grasped. Okay, something to be grasped. And you're thinking grasped as uh, understood? Or If you read it from a, you know, yeah. an Aryan perspective, you'd right. say Christ could not have been God if he right. didn't find himself uh, able to, to have that equality. Okay, um, okay good question. Um, and what we'll do is I'll answer the question, but then we'll kind of go into a little more detail next week. Because that's one of the passages that I was wanting to um, 
kind of talk about next week. We're going to talk about maybe a couple of big um, Christology pa passages, and that's clearly one of them. It's called the Carmen Christi, the Song of, Song of Christ. Um, and so that, that um, not, not, uh, something not to be grasped is it was something not to be held on to. And so um, it's, uh, it's not that uh, he didn't understand it or that people didn't understand it. It's not talking about like intellectual ability or anything. What it's talking about, um, or cognitive ability, what it's talking about is uh, holding on to those rights and privileges. Because if you look at that whole passage, it's talking about humility. And so the point is that he gave up his rights in order to, um, to humble himself to, to the point of death on a cross. Okay? Um, now, a guy that does a far better job of exegeting that passage than I ever could is James White. Um, James White does a whole thing on Philippians 2, and he, it, it's, he does an amazing job. He really does. It's a great sermon. Well, it's a lesson, actually, but it kind of turns into a little bit of a sermon. So um, did that answer your question? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so we'll talk about some of the big, big passages next week. Okay? And then also kind of some of the, I'll call them so what's, right? So um, how the Trinity and Christology, how it impacts um, salvation and how it impacts our prayer life and how it, it impacts our life um, altogether. We're, the salvation part, we're not going to go into a ton of detail because we're going to talk about the doctrine of salvation, um, I don't know, in another month or two. Um, but we, we will kind of touch on it. Did you have a question? No? I thought I saw you guys. Okay, cool. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, so when did the human portion of um, Christ come into to being? Um, that's a good question because if you think about, well, I'll just, I'll just answer it straight up. If you think about you and I, um, we came into being um, at, at conception. Okay. Now there's folks out there who believe that you know there's like a collection of souls, and then when somebody's born, you take the soul and then you, you drop it in. Um, I don't I don't believe that. I don't think that's supported. I don't think you can support that biblically. So I think the human uh, soul, the human uh, or spirit, and the the human body both come into being at conception. And if that's the case for hu humans, then that would be the case for Christ as well, because he's 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 fully human. What, are we human for not as long as God has known us? Yeah. Man, okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. So, so here's the thing. That's a great question. And I was kind of figuring out, do, you, do, do I go there a second ago? And you, you brought me there. So this is really, it's kind of a philosophical question, right? And the reason I say that, I distinguish that between a, a philosophical and a biblical question because the Bible isn't really doesn't really comment on that. Okay, philosophically, you have to say, 
if God knew us in eternity past, does that mean that we exist in, in eternity past? Okay? There's probably in some way that you could say that, but I just don't. Biblically, it's, it's silent on that. Okay? But that would be what's called realism. And what that means is the, God's ideas are real. Um, they, they actually, or, you know, if, 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 you, um, if you have a, an, um, an idea of your, your child before they're born, um, you're thinking about them. Do they exist in some way? Now, of course, God really ratchets that up because, you know, he's God. But um, that's a good question. I think the Bible is silent. And I think it just kind of depends on your, on your philosophy, okay? It's a great, I, I do like talking about that sort of thing. I just, it's a, um, it's a hard forum, so cool. Yes, ma'am. There is a scripture, so I mm-hmm. have to say that God knew us from the foundation of the world. Yes. So that's a big question. Is yes. It like our conception or we exist yeah. and in God's plan? Right. Right. It's a very big question. Yeah, it is. It, re- it really is. And that's a great point. He, uh, God knew us um, from, you know, the foundation of the world. And so, you know, can we say that we exist at that point? Well, an argument can be made. I'll, I'll put it that way. Right. Right. It doesn't have to make sense right. to that way. Right. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah, it's uh, it's a uh, it's good good questions. They they really are. Um, what's that? I better pray before anybody else has a question. So cool. I'm not even looking over Randy's way anymore. So okay, cool. Speaking of Randy, Randy, you wanna you wanna close this in prayer? Cool. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the wonderful teaching that Fred brought us this morning. The, to kind of talk, you're incomprehensible persons. Uh, God, what a great God you are. We love you. We praise you, God, and thank you for the wonderful church that we have, the great family that we get to be a part of. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. We thank you for your hardships. We thank you, God, that everything you bring to us is making us into um, the image of your son. We praise you for this morning. We pray that um, you would be with the message this morning, that it would be taught, and that we would understand, and that it would make us more like you. Thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, folks.